I'm Bob Sewell. I'm a lawyer. In fact, I'm a partner at the law firm of Davis Miles McGuire Gardner. I started this podcast because my clients always ask me, is that even legal? I want to discuss on this podcast how the law affects us and changes our daily lives. I hope you enjoy the show. I hope it is meaningful to you and I hope you learn from it. Thank you. To our listeners, welcome to the podcast. Today's guest is Scott Becker. He is a partner at McGuire Woods. Scott, welcome to the show. Bob, thank you so much for having me, and what a pleasure to get a chance to visit with you today. Thank you. I'm super excited to have you on, and the reason why is, as you know, I like to have the best come on, the people who are operating at the highest levels in a particular given area, and you're operating at a very high level uh, within the area of private equity, and for the purposes of this podcast, healthcare. You're a lawyer, you're a CPA, you're the founder of the Becker's Hospital Review and the Becker's Healthcare, and you uh, have a, your own podcast. You do your own podcasting. And so I'm super happy to have you on. So thank you for coming. Well, thank you. No, thrilled to get a chance to visit. And hopefully I'll offer something useful. We'll see how it goes. You'll, you'll see. But thank you for having me on. <clears throat> so there's some things that really concern everyone in the United States. And among the chief concerns that people have is the price of healthcare. And one of the things that I've noticed in my days globe trotting and doing what I like to do is that in my humble opinion as a red red-blooded American guy uh I think we have the best healthcare money can buy in the world. The best healthcare money can buy. But by golly you're going to have to have the money to buy it. And that's where the problem comes in. This is the cost. Recently, there is a federal rule. I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, but the federal rule that changed disclosure requirements uh, for healthcare costs. Have you heard of that rule? Sure. No, there's a transparency rule, pricing transparency rule. And, and it, you know, it's, it's a fascinating thing. It's actually... One of those things where there's continuity, the, the Trump administration put that in place. The Biden administration was fairly silent on it for a while. The hospital sort of association and world, I think largely would have liked to have seen that rule go away for a bunch of reasons, not necessarily bad reasons, but for good reasons and bad reasons, they would have liked to see that go away. And then President Biden recently said, no, 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 we're going to move forward with enforcement of those rules. And, and we'd like to have that kinds of price transparency. And so, what yeah, is it? Quite what familiar. is it actually doing? What does that rule actually do? So, as I understand, I'll give you just a quick summary. There are a whole host of things that a hospital has to make public their pricing on. And, and so, you know, if you look on a hospital's website or someplace, you've got to be able to find the hospital's pricing on a whole list of different procedures, a whole list of different things. So that if you're a shopper or a consumer, you could see what the, you know, what the hospital charges for X or Y service. And so there's, that's the gist of it. The gist of it is you have to post your prices and hospital pricing is, you know, I, I, you're, you're probably too young to have kids that go to college, but as you start to have kids that go to college, 
you find, and you didn't know realize this, but everybody pays a different price after under a certain income level. If you're under a certain income level, everybody pays a different price. Even above a certain income level, many people pay different prices. In healthcare, because different hospitals have contracts with different payers, the everybody, every payer gets a different price for their patients. It means every patient or consumer has a different has a different deductible, different coinsurance, different price that they're paying for the service, even though it might be the same service. Obviously, for Medicare, there's a Medicare set fee schedule for Medicaid. It's often the same. But for individuals that don't have coverage or uncovered, you know, don't have insurance coverage, they're typically paying a price that's worse than the negotiated insurance price. And, and of course, that strikes us all as, well, that's not fair. The individual who's poorer and doesn't have a contract and doesn't fit within Medicare or Medicaid is paying a higher price than those patients that are covered by insurance with an insurance company has negotiated a specific rate. And there's all history as to why this is and why it is unfair, but why it makes sense from a hospital perspective and why they have to do this. And we can talk about that further if you like. From what I understand, just at a very basic level, is that the hospitals now have to list the price of certain services and procedures. And and that can vary by payer. So you can go onto a hospital website and at least the, the, there's a local behemoth here called Banner Healthcare, okay? And I could go on the Banner site and I could go to that particular hospital that's near my house and I could choose my third-party payer, my insurance company or the cash rate, and I could figure out you know, what they're charged for X procedure is. And I I find it actually kind of interesting. That wasn't the way it was before, right? Sure. I mean, a lot of times you could anyways, but you had to ask. And what this made, the difference here was that they're required to post them. So, you know, 100%. No, it's, it's a, it's a, it's, you know, it's intended to drive more consumers into healthcare. Um, that's the intention of the rules and, 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 and maybe to push hospitals to reduce their prices for those that aren't covered by insurance contracts and so forth. But it really has a couple of those different aims to, to make healthcare more consumer centric. And this is a real challenge to accomplish, but that's, that's part of the aim of the idea. You know, it was interesting. I had, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I have a family that live in a socialized country. And my family member needed to have an MRI, bad back. She has a bad back and she needed an MRI. And the doctor said, you know, hey, look, you, you need an MRI for me to explain to you what's going on with your back, why you're experiencing pain. But because you're only experiencing pain and we have other people that need those services, you're going to have to wait. And the wait was 18 months. She's like, well, I'm in pain. I want my, I want my back scanned. And the doctor's like, well, you can go to this private insurer, a private, private provider to get your scan. So that's what she does. She calls up and she searches around for a private provider. And fascinating enough, you, I went to the websites for her um, and you could look at the price and you could say, okay, this is the scan she needs and it's 500 bucks or whatever the price was. And then you can go and get the scan done and then have it sent to the doctor. 
Okay. It, and it made comparison shopping pretty dang easy because we knew what we were looking for. We knew what we, what we needed. And, you know, we could go shop the few services. But is that really going to help us here? Right. So it's a, it's, a, it's a great, great question. You really sort of articulated a few different thoughts in there that are so valuable to understand. One of the reasons, and there's a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons healthcare is so expensive in our country is that we largely get what we want when we want it. And, and we pay a premium for that. You, you made the example of your cousin or relative in a different country where she could get it, but it would take 18 months. Here, you can get it, but it'll take three days. And it's a very different thing. And so part of the reasons why healthcare is so expensive here is we've grown used to getting what we want when we want it. Now, the second question you ask is, is will this make a difference? And I think the hospital lobby would argue probably not so much, and the physician lobby too. And, and the reason, it's, it's convoluted because how it works in our country between Medicaid, Medicare, and commercial plans, something like 90% of us have coverage of some sort. And obviously, we need, get, we need to get to the spot. It's a totally different, totally different discussion where 100% of people have coverage, but right now 90% have coverage. The other terms that don't have coverage fit in a variety of different buckets, but mostly aren't consumer shopping anyway. So they're, they're, they're they're often the other members that don't have coverage, often very indigent, very poor, and just haven't got signed up for some plan. Or they fit, or they 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 sit in some sort of gap of coverage, so they're probably not shopping that carefully for coverage. But they often get dinged with healthcare bankruptcies because they because they don't have the means and the wherewithal. For the right. rest of us that have coverage, you and I know that if I need something done. <clears throat> oh, goodness. Unless it's something that's clearly consumer-driven, coming out of my deductible, but even if it's coming out of my deductible, I'm almost certainly going where I think is the right place to go, absent something obnoxious on pricing, absent something that just really hits me. Like, oh, my God, I'm going to use up all my deductible on that when I could have got it at a different place where it's equal quality. You follow me? But it's very oh, yeah, hard yeah. to make those assessments. It's very hard to make those assessments. So an MRI is kind of easier, but for most things, like right now I'm getting physical therapy. It's coming out of my deductible, my HSA, you know, but I sort of feel like, okay, the price seems reasonable until I get to my deductible limit. I'm just going to deal with it. You know, am I really going to shop it? You know, I sort of looked at, you know, who would I get referred to as a physical therapist? We're using them. Would I have really shopped it? Probably not. And if I'm doing something big, like oncology care, I'm not shopping it. I'm going through my deductibles very quickly. I'm trying to find the right oncologist or the right person. So whether it really leads to shopping or not, it, 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 I think that the directional concept, you hit yeah, it you right. Know, Today, people are not shopping. And I'll stop to let you ask a question. I'm so sorry. No, I think I think you're right. It's, you know, what, what's fascinating to me is... Uh, I, I'm not going to claim to be an expert in antitrust, but I spent this. I spent some time working for an uh, working for an attorney general, and we did antitrust investigations. I was in the antitrust section as as a law student, and I spent a year there, and I worked on some hospital investigations. And what was fascinating to me as we began our research and our interviews is we learned that people really didn't shop for health healthcare. They didn't look to the best provider. 
necessarily. They didn't want to find just the best. If they had a problem, what was a, one of the biggest factors in their decision was location. Where is this provider? Where is this provider coming from? Unless they have some very specific problem, some very acute problem, you know, they blew their back out. They're going to go to a healthcare provider that's convenient for them based on some sort of zip code location and not necessarily the best or the cheapest. And, and I'm not certain why that is, except maybe healthcare is the, 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 the whole insurance mechanism changes the factors. Yes. Well, the insurance mechanism is a huge part of it. That people have traditionally not been paying for their own health care. If you were to look at health care, you know, 100 years ago or a long time ago, the concept was you're going to pay for your day-to-day care, and insurance really is there for catastrophes, and health care has really changed that to where almost everything's paid for through insurance, although there's some evolution to that the last couple of years since the Affordable Care Act and, and before, where there's higher and higher deductibles and so forth. But you, it's always been paid by a third party. And the, and the second issue is on quality. You know, quality has been very anecdotal. You, you hear from somebody else, that's the best doctor, that's the best hospital, versus real stats on it. There are a few areas where there are magnificent stats out there on doctor performance and lab performance and so forth, but they're few and far between in healthcare. So in terms of being able to judge it and review it, like you do on so many other things. At Amazon, you could get a thousand different reviews on a product. In healthcare, it's very hard to do that. And it's very hard to get good data on who's better or worse. So because it's very anecdotal in terms of the quality, then in terms of the payment, exactly as you said, a huge amount of it's paid by insurance companies. So you have this disconnect of, am I really concerned about the price because I'm not paying for it directly myself? Right. And that, that's sort of the disc. I, I like how you said that is a, there is a disconnect when you have a third party payer. And so we have these, we, we see this insurance company as the manager of our costs, the manager of our healthcare. When we look at our healthcare costs, we look at that premium uh, that we're paying every month or whatever periodic payment we have. Let me ask you this question. How do insurance companies actually come to a price? If I got a gallbladder I'm going to have removed and I, 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 yeah, I'm going to go and I'll need an insurance, you know, I'll need a, a, a surgery room. I'll need, you know, some, someone to do my anesthesia. I'll need a surgeon. I'll need, you know, whatever, a tech helper, you know, that the surgeon has. How do they come to that price with, you know, all these different providers? Sure. So at the end of the day, it's it's the same way that it happens in all kinds of business. They're, they're generally negotiating with providers. They're negotiating contracts. So you'll see in any community, and and you're you're in, you're in where Banner Health is big, uh, where Common Spirit is big. You know, also Honor Health is is really nice size system there. Those systems are negotiating with the big payers in those communities. You know, and, and those payers and systems agree to some kind of contracted deal, and those are the contracted rates that they're paying. You know, and, and Medicare is different. Medicare unilaterally sets a fee schedule. This is what right. Medicare pays. This is what Medicaid pays. But for those big payers, 
it's why the big payers only want so many contracts because every single person they have a contract with, they also have a contract with, and they have to have either negotiation with. Of course, the less leverage that the system has, that the individual doctor has, the more that they just have to take what the insurance company will give them. But the more level leverage they have, you have two big parties negotiating, you know, rates, and they try and make them three to five year contracts because it used to be like the old school district contracts that every few years there's an automatic strike. You know, if if you don't agree to terms between the teachers and the school district, so they, they try and um, you know, negotiate contracts, and it's it's a you know it's a, it's a big deal those contracts. Yeah, and so you know, one of the things that I've learned as a, as an attorney, I've had handled some litigation involving medical billing, and it's really fascinating to me, actually, how the bill happens. And so, just for our listeners' purposes, you already know this. You know, the healthcare provider will create what's called a super bill. And on that super bill is codes and their healthcare codes. And they describe the services provided, the drugs provided, and that's what those codes do. And then that, that super bill is then submitted to the insurance company. And the insurance company then issues payment, right? There's all sorts of stuff that happens in between. We don't need to get that to that, but that's the basics. Do I got that right, Scott? Yeah, no, absolutely, 100%. And as a consumer, though, I never see that super bill. I have no idea what's on that bill. Yes, and when you do see it, you do get these EOBs, you get these vaccination benefits, you get these things. But when you do see that super bill, you know, because they often show the retail price versus the contract rate, you're often, as a consumer, if you ever do see it, you're blown away at what the retail prices are versus the contracted rates. Right. You know, you're right. We're, we're <laughs> you know, the, the retail price will be a thousand bucks and the contract rate will be like 200 bucks or something like this. Um, one of the things, though, that bothers people is that so you have this retail price and then you have the contract price how is that legal how is it legal to offer to the people who could afford it allegedly could afford it the insurance company the reduced price and to the consumer who has who's a cash pay who maybe didn't sign up for a plan or you know doesn't fit the fit the hole right that doesn't fit the, the price mechanism for insurance. How do you, how does, how's that legal? Sure. Well, it's not, it's not, um, what happens is every hospital has sort of the retail rates or rack rates. I mean, think of it like a hotel might have a national contract with a, you know, a big company that uses hotels all over the world, stuff like that. So, you know, bank of America has a contract with Marriott or whichever they do that when, Bank of America employees go to Marriott to get a special rate. And, and that's, of course, different than the retail rate that the hospital charges and it's buying a, you know, a, a room off the, off, the, off the street. And it's very similar with, with hospitals and health systems. They've got rates they've negotiated with payers that control you know, 10, 20, 30, 40% of the local book of business. And then they've got retail rates. And the retail rates are sort of, if, you're not, if you don't have a negotiated rate with us, and it's why you or I have to almost always access our health care through Blue Cross, United, Aetna, Cigna. I don't know who you have, or you might have somebody else. 
but it's almost always through those because we need somebody to negotiate our rates for us. And we do it in this Byzantine way, you know, through our employers or however we do it. But ultimately, they're negotiating our rates for us. And then there are a small pocket of people, about 10%, 9 to 10%, that don't have, that they're not covered by insurance. And they're still not covered by insurance. And so they're paying the hospital's retail rates. Now, the reality is the hospitals will almost always negotiate some adjustments with those people. I mean, right. almost, almost always. Any reputable system is going to work on developing adjustments for those people so they're not, they're not just killed by this, so they're handled well. But it's, it's, it's a really complex thing because the hospitals are forced to have a retail rate that's higher than their ordinary rates because there, there's two rules. One, peers often say, we have a negotiated rate with you, but you can't charge us more than your usual customary rate, your right. usual customary charge. And, and Medicare says a similar thing. You can't charge us more than usual customary charge. So what this does is those rules, those contractual rules with payers and those government rules force hospitals and health systems to have their retail rate set above their contract rates or their Medicare rates so they can't be tripped up by their payers or by Medicare. So you've got this, you've got this very perverse system where the hospitals have to set the rates higher than their ordinary insurance rates. And they have to set them higher than their Medicare rates for fear of having Medicare or the payers sue them. So you've got this, you've got this really complex situation. I want to take a break here for a second and talk about our sponsor, DocuPlayer. Folks, the entire purpose of this podcast is to make the law more understandable. We break it down. We sort it out. We get rid of the legalese. There's a product out there that helps lawyers do this for their clients. It's called DocuPlayer. And what it does, it is allows a lawyer to explain a document on a video. You could highlight the document. You could point specific things out to the client. You could explain the document as you go to the client. Clients love it. They understand the document better. And they get to go through the document with the lawyer as many times as they want just by hitting rewind. If you're a lawyer, check out the product at DocuPlayer.com. If you're a client, insist upon using it. You know, one of the things that I'm concerned about or curious about is whether or not there's any willpower for those people who have the power to bring down the price or at least try to stabilize the price because it exceeds inflation, right? I mean, the price of healthcare steps up every year higher than inflation. What's What's being, what's, what are the ideas out there besides the single payer system, which is incredibly controversial? What are some of the ideas out there to try to control price and would it work? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a great, great question. You've got this, you know, you have the situation where, um, and there's complex parts of all these issues, you know? Right. So people, there's right now you have two big issues and then a third one. Okay. You've got coverage. We've still got nine, ten percent of the people in the country who just don't have coverage at all. And some of those would have coverage through Medicaid if they signed up early. But take it that there's nine to ten percent of people that don't have coverage out of three hundred thirty million people. Then you have access. So even if you have coverage, 
you need to have enough doctors, nurses, institutions to have coverage. Uh, right now, one of the biggest problems we have is, is a looming access problems. The, the coverage yeah. problem, 9%, is a budget issue. It's a solvable issue. I mean, it's, it's just it's an expensive issue, but it's a solvable issue, and it's probably not that expensive because a lot of people are getting covered one way or another. You just don't have formal coverage. Access is a huge problem, and access leads to your cost problem. Access, even if we have coverage for all 330 million people, we don't have enough doctors, nurses, technology in our country to really take care of 330 million people like, like we'd like to. So you talk about this and you say what you said earlier, the U.S. has this magnificent health system, and it does, but it also has real challenges. It's got equity problems. It's, 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 it's great, but it's not as great as it is in certain areas as it is in other countries, but right. it's great overall. For serving 330 million people, you got to remember, after China and India, we're the largest country in the world. And so serving 330 million people, I would argue that our overall health system does a very good job of it with some gaps. Yes. So to actually address cost, to actually address cost, you, you ultimately would need two things. You would need a, a better pricing mechanism probably at some point for all kinds of healthcare services. Because right now, you've got everybody negotiating 13 different ways for their services. Second, if you had a better pricing mechanism, you also need a much more efficient system. And so a lot of people would say we need what's called a value-based system, which means, a, a, you know, it, it, which could mean a million different things. In, in some ways, it means a better way of rationing who really needs what at this point, you know, of judging, rationing, whatever you want to call it, a better rationing system for people, do people really need everything they want. And in some ways, that's dealt with through higher deductibles. But more than anything, and this is a great question. I'm not sure that it's the, but to really have the access we need, we need so many more doctors and nurses so that they're not all burnt out, they're not all beat up, and so we could really serve 330 million people. Yeah. And if we had enough doctors and nurses that they could have reasonable lives, you know, would they be paid the same? Would their their rates of cost not go up at the same rate? Would we be able to pay them more reasonable amounts? But you've got this horrible challenge in our country where, if we went back a generation ago. Doctors are a great example. They often came out of the military. They often immigrated here, and they went to every community in the country. Yeah. Now you've got a huge situation where the huge majority of doctors, uh, women or men, whatever it is, end up in the major cities. Like they, they, they don't even want to be in secondary cities. They want to be in the major cities. And so you have huge shortages in the non-major cities. And then in the non-major cities, they're almost always focused on serving the people that can pay versus those that can't. So you have these multiple access and equity problems, not even getting to the cost problem, which is what you really asked about. But I think if you want to deal with cost, you have to have enough supply of physicians, nurses, healthcare workers, everybody to be able to, do, to deal with supply. And then you got to figure out whether, you know, Medicare's got the right pricing or United and Cigna and Aetna and Blue Cross have the right pricing for services and how do we make care a lot more efficient? I mean, we, we do have the situation, like when you talk to somebody who's a leader in Canada on healthcare, they'll say, look, you have a great system and you're a little spoiled. You get everything exactly when you want it. In Canada, you don't. And right. so, no, but, you don't. but by not you getting wait. everything when you want it, you, you save money. And so it's, it's complicated as to where do we want to hit those lines as to what we can get when we want it. Right, and that's what my family member was in Alberta Healthcare, you know, uh, 
sure, we'll provide you all the services you you need. Well, you want those, you know, you want this service. We don't think you need it. Uh, so therefore, we're going to make you wait 18 months. And, you know, that that said, it was if she waited 18 months, it would have been free. But she was unwilling to do that. And so it, it's there's a lot of things in healthcare. It's an incredibly complicated problem. Would it be solved by by having um would it be solved by having more players in the insurance industry or would that make it worse? I, I don't know that it would really help. What you have right now is this constant dance of the insurance companies. They have to be able to sell to employers at a certain rate structure. And to be able to sell at that rate structure, they have to be able to contract with the hospitals and health systems at a certain rate structure to try and, you know, they have to be able to pay the hospitals and health systems a rational amount so they could turn around their middle middle person, turn around and sell to employees, employers at a certain amount. And so if, if you had more insurance companies, you know, would it just make it more complex? I don't really know. I mean, it might just make it more complex. And if you're a hospital system, I mean, you want enough, I mean, you have, a, you have the flip side concern. If you're a hospital system, you want to be able to charge the insurance company enough that you could make the margins work at your health system. And, and the hospital systems are, you know, they're, they're, the new world is asset light and employee light. Hospital systems are not that. They're, they're heavy bricks and mortars or heavy assets and they're labor heavy. I mean, all of us might say we want a labor less heavy environment until we actually want care for our family, then we want, we, we need nurses yeah. and staff and everything. We need it all, you know? Right, so right. I don't know if more insurance companies, hospitals like there to be more insurance companies. So they're not so beholden. If you're in a certain state where one of the big insurance companies controls 70, 80% of the market, you have no choice, but to do business with them. And so right. you have to take the rate they'll give you because they control the employers. Um, hospitals would like there to be more insurance companies, but not so much. So they could drive down the cost of care. They want it so that, They've got more flexibility to charge, you know, to not be so beholden to X numbers of, of insurance companies, payers, et cetera. Yeah. So, I mean, theoretically, the that if the hospitals, if they had more people to negotiate with, they could play each play one insurer off another insurer to get the lower to, to get the higher rate for them. Right. I mean, that's theoretically. It's that's right. Interesting dance. To get a better rate. Exactly. I want to change the subject. Yeah, no, it price. really is. I, I want to change the subject from price. And I want and I want to talk about, you know, actually consuming healthcare. And this this came up, a friend of mine, a very dear friend, he who, who's passed away, he called me and he says, and he's he's an attorney. He hadn't practiced for a long time because he was battling uh his disease for a long, long time. And he calls me up and he's absolutely frustrated. And he says, Bob, half the time I'm not coherent. You know, half the time I, I don't really make a lot of sense in my head. And the other half of the time when these healthcare providers come in, I, I'm coherent, but maybe not quite as much as I want to be. And I'm being required to make decisions and to have intelligent conversations when a lot of the times I'm not there. And he says, and it's very, very frustrating because COVID has put 
my wife outside the the my my uh, sick bed. You know, my sick bed's in the hospital. COVID put my wife outside. Is that a problem? I mean, there's just there's so many different uh, problems wrapped up in that question. I mean, you've got this aging of our country, which comes with the aging of the mind and everything else. Yeah. You've got the situation where, you know, in COVID and nursing homes and other kinds of things, relatives can't be with each other. Uh, you've got a situation where staff has just been overwhelmed. Yeah. Nurses, staff, administrators, staff, everybody's just been overwhelmed over the last year and a half. And that's not, that's not letting up all that much. And so you've just got so many different issues there. I, you know, I don't, um, you know, you've got health care and taking care of Americans. 330 million people is a very labor intensive business. You're We're sure. fortunate to have more providers per capita than Africa, India, and a ton of other places, China, et cetera. But it's a challenging, challenging problem. And it's the same thing on the administrative side. I mean, it's why there are so many technology driven companies trying to find ways to play in this market. And, and help make improvements and, and simplify care. But at the same time, care is still a very hands-on experience. And, and you know, you need a procedure. You, need, you actually need somebody to do it, you know, not just a machine. So it's, it's, I, I don't know if there's a good answer to your question. But there's so many challenges wrapped up in that question, too. But I guess, as, I guess from, a, from a patient advocacy standpoint, can, can it be that the patient advocate, can it be that, there should be there should be law or there is law that would say, hey, for these types of patients who can't advocate for themselves, they need an advocate. They need to be able to come in. A hundred percent. I mean, you've got all these things that people try to work with and you're familiar with them, like advanced directives where yeah. patient says, if at some point I'm having trouble, you know, with my lucidity or my you know, ability to articulate or make decisions, someone else has the right to make decisions for me. But we also know that those kinds of things, one, a very small percentage of people actually deal with, you actually do advanced directives, and two, when they are actually put into play, it, it's in often that they work as cleanly as people would like them to work. You know, so there's right. just, you know, and, and should there be a separate ombudsman or something like that that's a patient advocate? Probably. I mean, one of the things that health systems deal with today is, and you're, 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 you're familiar with this, you can get the most greatest acute care to place, the greatest tertiary care to place, but care navigation in the system could still be awful. So you can go to the sure. most elite institution, get the greatest procedure done, and then try and figure out where you're going next, and care navigation is awful. And it's, it's, it, it, and it's not always the case, but it's often the case. And systems are getting better at it, but it's still largely you know, a real gap in the system. And it, it's similar to patient advocacy, care navigation, they're very people intensive things and, and they, and the money's got to come from someplace. And so health systems don't get paid for it. So they've been slow to sort of just hire tens and tens of care navigators to just help go through the system. Yeah, but, but you see, when you call some systems, you call the schedule an appointment and within 30 seconds or a couple minutes, you get through to somebody, you know, I mean, this past year, when you call to get through to Expedia, it could take hours for the airlines. Right, right. If you got through it all, but yeah, exactly. Yeah, it it, it is. These are 
when it comes to healthcare, these are incredibly difficult problems. And, you know, providing the healthcare is one thing, trying to figure out an equitable means to, to deliver the, the healthcare uh, is another. And, uh, you know, the, and it, and it, and it's problematic from my perspective, from, from every perspective, just how, you know, how, how many healthcare providers we have, how many, uh, how many people who are providing the care, how many institutions are out there, uh, the location, um, just so many challenges. If you looked at 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago, and you had to get your kid in to see the doctor, you had to call the doctor's office, and the doctor's office, depending who was answering the phone, was either a blocker or a helper. And so it was just brutal to get your kid in when they're sick. It, and, yeah. you know, you, get, you know, I, you know these your children, but for us, we went through a very long period of time. Then all of a sudden, major systems started to develop urgent care locations. And now it was freedom, because I no longer had to call the doctor's office to get in to see the doctor. I can go to the urgent care when my kid was sick. Right. And then, of course, the doctor's offices got much better at this, too. They put in sick hours. They said, no, 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 you could come in. And the people that answered the phones got a little bit better. It, it, it led them to be a little bit more customer-centric. What you do have going now, and it's, it's a great challenge to the major health systems, you have all these new organizers, organizers of care through you know, electronic, telephonic, et cetera, et cetera, where and none of them are yet where they have to be, but they're getting a lot better to where you might be able to access a physician or something else in a very simple way. And what it does is ultimately gives you alternatives. And you have in response to that, the health systems trying to get better at better at how they deliver care and deliver the customer experience, the consumer experience. And you see health systems you know, getting you know, better you're and right. better at this. You're right. You know, I uh, I had an experience. They are getting better at that. I had an experience where I had a really minor issue, like, uh, you know, like a sinus infection, I think it was. And I'm like, man, I don't want to go and sit in an urgent care. And I don't want to try to get an appointment with my doctor and wait two weeks or wait a week. You know, I want my services now. All right. And which is an unreasonable, in my yeah. opinion, it's probably pretty unreasonable to me, but that's what I wanted. And then it dawns on me, you know, I have this telemed service through my insurer and I call up and they're like, and then and the insurer, uh, the provider says, uh, yes, this costs $50 and uh, we'll call you back. You know, give us the $50 now. We'll call you back in uh, 20 minutes. I'm like, okay. So they call me back in 20 minutes. We get on a Zoom call and uh, I describe my symptoms. I'm talking to someone in, in Minnesota. And then the next thing you know, my uh, prescription is getting emailed to you know, the pharmacy. It really was more convenient and frankly, pretty inexpensive. So this is the great, great evolution. And of course, you know, this will be the great evolution. Because, like, you, you look at, there's multiple different urgent cares in our area. A couple of them are great. They're run by the local health systems. They're just absolutely great. Like, we feel like we're seeing the same doctors. We're seeing, we're seeing professionals. And then there's some that are the retail boxes. And this is not to knock the retail boxes, but there's usually one doctor there. 
maybe you don't, and, and it's a real mix of quality. And so we never go there unless we have to. Like we go there if we need a sport physical for our kid. We just right. sign something to get him on the on the field. But then right. we won't go there. It's not real. So so the real thing that will happen will if you start to use this telemedicine option, you'll, you'll have to start making more and more assessments. All of us will. Am I getting the quality care I want? And you might very well be. You know, you might very well be, or am I not? You know, do I feel like the person really understood my issue, really saw the issue, gave me a prescription that really worked, or am I worried that they missed something and I'm going to have cancer in my sinuses and I better go see a specialist? <laughs> right. I mean, right. And this will be the great this will be the great evolution to see how. But 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 what happens is having that telemedicine option gave you an alternative. You're no longer held hostage to, I can't get into this specialist, this specialist. It also makes things much more fluid. You're not reliant on that doctor within 10 miles of you. You could, t- you could see a doctor anyplace. And you just hope that this, and, and, it, and it may be perfect for 78% of the problems. And there's still 20% that you got to go see somebody local or whatever the number is. Yeah, it's fascinating. Scott, you're in the forefront of what's happening here. You're in both in private equity. You're also dealing with hospitals. You do a lot of work in this industry. If those people who are in the know, those people who want to see change or are, or are watching the change happen, what one change could we expect to see going down the road that if if Scott and, and uh, the people he serves could wave their magic wand and make it happen, what would they see right now? Oh, that is a that is a um, that is a magnificent question, and and I go back to this issue of access, and I don't know that I'll hit this how you want to hit it, but but I just think we have the technology, the innovations are all fantastic. The, the investments in telehealth and be able to exploit and make care more accessible where we are, when we want it, are, are magnificent. At the end of the day, if we don't solve the following issue, which is the healthcare shortages of physicians, specialists, nurses, everybody's in the healthcare ecosystem, we just have horrible, looming problems. So you see a lot of answers being developed. You see uh, Novant Health in North Carolina just developed a new medical school. I think there might be a new medical school in your area of the world. There's no new medical schools that are starting to evolve, and they are they are a, an important part of solving this issue. But with those, you need more residency spots. You need a lot of other issues to really create the number of doctors that we need. You, you probably should make getting into medical school a little bit easier because we we miss out on hundreds of thousands of candidates would be magnificent doctors that can't get in, um, you know, not, you know, but, but there, and then in the healthcare worker area, not just doctors, we have huge shortages looming. And, and what you see in Washington is this political debate between Medicare for all and sort of freedom of contract or free market. And, and the reality is the real answers are somewhere in between and the real answers are tougher ones to solve. The real answers are we've got 330 million people, we've got these huge looming shortages, and we need both the Republicans and Democrats or somebody to take the lead and say, you know, we've got, we, have, we have seriously a, a shortage of healthcare workers and healthcare providers and healthcare physicians and everything else. How do we solve that? And, and, and sort of, it's impossible to actually do, but put politics aside and not talk in terms of like, um, you know, Medicare for all, there's only 40% of people in America that are on Medicare. So when people talk about Medicare for all, that's not really reality. Medicaid is how we filled a lot of the gap, and they've done a pretty good job of it. 
federally, but Medicaid is what's filled the gap. There's, so there's a huge percentage of people on Medicaid. There's only 14% of Medicare. The flip side is the Republican side will say, well, it should not just be the free market. Well, that's also completely ludicrous because more than 50% of healthcare right now is paid for by Medicare and Medicaid or something like that. So it's already, we're not living in a free market. It's already 50% government paid. And so, but, but at the end of the day, aside from marketing are those two diverse positions, we got to figure out how to deal with healthcare shortage issues because we've got, a, you know, the aging population, 330 million people, a growing population and the physician community, the nurse community, not keeping up with that at all. I mean, it's our, our physicians and nurses are, are overwhelmed and they're, and they're, they're not slaves. They're free to do whatever they want. You know, right. So we got to figure out a way to have more of them so that we can end up taking care of our population. And, and nobody talks about that because it's a very difficult problem. Whereas the other problems are, are relatively solvable. We're only 9% away from everybody having coverage. So we could do it, but we can't give everybody access unless we solve this problem. And you and I know if you <laughs> want to see a great specialist, we have to know somebody. Right. Involvement, we already know this. And so if yeah. you're in a poor community, you don't have access to specialists like we do in privileged communities. It's just not, it's just, it's just the reality of it. It's unfair. It, it's just the reality that we're in, but we got to figure out a way to get more great physicians, more great nurses. We have a magnificent community. We need a lot more of them. Scott, thank you for coming on the show. It's been enlightening. And I really appreciate you taking the time. It means a lot to me. Thank you. Folks, thank you for listening. This has been the podcast, Is That Even Legal? A discussion of what's legal. Just as a reminder, this is not legal advice for you. This is general information. It's meant to be educational. If you have specific legal needs, don't be afraid to reach out to an attorney to get good legal advice. Attorneys are lovable. They're fun. They want to hear from you. See you next time.